Hello, Kevin. Awesome. You guys are nerds. Damn right. Oh, Kevin, you're so witty. I would stab someone in the face. Oh, that's gross. I'm cutting this, by the way. The Ad Philosophy, episode 145, recorded on November 10th, 2013. Turnalism, part one. Hello, everyone. Welcome in. One, two, bad philosophy. I am your host, Stephen Torrance, and uh, we're back for another episode a month later. I wonder, Stephen, yeah. have you always said we're back from like the second episode forward? Because I noticed this the last couple times that you say that, like, we're back. Um, and I'm yeah. just curious if that if that has been a part of this phrase the whole time and I've only now picked up on it. I think I've said it a lot. I don't okay. think I've said it every time. It's but... Maybe not quite as formalized as... Uh, Hello, every welcome and one to right. philosophy and all that jazz. Uh, I think I think I probably said it eighty percent of the time. Okay. If, okay. if any of our listeners feel compelled, if any of you, <laughs> if any of you feel compelled to count the number of times, it won't actually be that hard for you. I mean, you, you only you have to listen pull to the, up intro. the first. Yeah. Full yeah. Up, I mean, you got to skip past the uh, the theme song, mm-hmm. but you can get there. And um, you know, we'll inadvertently get some more uh, some more page views. Yeah. Downloads. Yay. Yay. So maybe uh, Stephen could use his dulcet tones to record another version of the theme song. Of the well, acapella I, I don't version. Know if we have a. <laughs> the theme... <laughs> could we? Could I beatbox our theme song? That's an interesting. Well, could you or could a beatboxer? <laughs> could a beat? Do, do we know any beatboxers? I don't. You live in Austin. I thought that was like the headquarters. <laughs> I don't know. Beatboxing is not as much a thing here. I bet. I bet we could find some beatboxers. Would if I we would, were to put out a call, do you think on I Craigslist? could find someone who beatboxes along with a guitar? Hmm. Hmm. Probably. So that voice you hear in the background, folks, by the way, is uh, is Sean Brackett. Hey. Welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me You're virtually welcome. again. Yeah, we're we're glad to have you. Virtually is um, better than not at all. Beside me here in the uh, Bad Philosophy Studios in Austin, Texas, <laughs> also known as my workplace, <laughs> is my good friend Kevin Saunders. Hi, I guess. Hey there, hi there, ho there. Yeah. I haven't said that in a while. How about ahoy? Ahoy! <laughs> as, as Alexander Graham Bell preferred, we would have answered the telephone mm-hmm. if, if he'd had his way. Yes. Also, sub-fun fact based on that fun fact. <laughs> is uh, it, wait, 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 is it a sub-fun fact because it is sub-fun or is, this, is it a sub-fun fact? Um, it might be both. I'm going to give you the fact and then you can let me know. Okay. Um, uh, Mr. Burns from The Simpsons mm-hmm. does in fact answer the phone with ahoy hoy as a <laughs> reference to the fact that he's really old and, you know, could perhaps have known Alexander Graham Bell, except for the fact that he couldn't have, but like that's... One of his old manisms that he he does because do they ever bring that up in the in this series or is that just no it's just I mean know? I mean if you watch him like if you watch him answer the phone he goes ahoy hoy um, I'm sure there are YouTube videos of it um, that is one of that is one of those things that just that I need to watch The Simpsons because there's just, I feel like there's so much of that that just probably goes by everybody oh, else oh there's a just... lot well do you know how many PhDs are on the writing staff of The Simpsons oh, wow a lot yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, the Simpsons has twice proven Fermat's last theorem or disproven Fermat's last theorem in like throwaway gags. What? Now they were false disproofs. Oh, oh okay. Um, they, like... they were called a close answer. Uh, um, but like <laughs> twice in the show in two different times and with two different answers, they just flashed by an equation that was basically a, a disproving of Fermat's last theorem. <laughs> Um, and so people actually would freeze frame it and check it, and then yeah. Go, well, and the thing is, thing if you would, and, yeah. if you would, well, okay. If you're not familiar with, I'm pretty sure it's his last term. It's, it's Vermont. I'm pretty sure it's Vermont. It's been a while since I've done math. We we probably touched on it in, in proof. We must have. Yeah. What is it um, all about it's, again? Okay, so we know that um, there are numbers for which a squared plus b squared equals c squared. Right. Those exist. Um, and we've even found. Um, ones for the power of three so a to the third plus b to the third equals c to the third okay um fermat in his last theorem which which i'm pretty sure is the one he also wrote like the proof for this is really simple but i didn't write it down Uh um says that there is nothing beyond the power of the third that has that um 
Oh, A to the that fourth. relationship. A, A, to, A the to the fourth. fourth plus A to the B. A to the X yeah. plus B to the X equals C to the X. Huh. Beyond the th- power of three. Whoa. Um, and it's one of those sort of joking things: is nobody's ever been able to find one. <laughs> Um, however, there are a few false positives that are not accurate, huh. but because of the limited power of our calculators dealing with really big numbers, if you put them into like a normal calculator, mm-hmm. you will get a result that seems right, hmm. um, but it isn't. Okay. And so people would, people like the math nerds saw mm-hmm. this equation, um, again, like, two oh, different equations, and they threw it in because uh... they recognized it was like something to the power of the 12th. To the power of the plus uh, equals to the power of the twelfth, and so they put it into the calculator. And they're like, "What? What?" Oh, um, and they thought that because that if the, you just put it into like you know a pocket calculator, yeah, then you you can't calculate it with um, that precision or yeah. something. But yeah, <sighs> um, wow. Well, way to go, Simpsons. Yeah, for they, um, the, the Simpsons is a very smart TV show. Sending a bunch of math nerds on a on a false errand or a fool's errand. Yeah. Uh, and um, if you're listening and have no idea what those two were just talking about, you can join me in the humanities corner <laughs> where we can talk about other things. Let's go to that corner, shall we? So yeah, let's, let's go. So, Sean, you work in higher education. I do. Um, yeah, for quite a while, as a matter of fact. Like, I, I met you seven years ago, and you were still working in higher education. So you've had a much more consistent career than either Stephen or myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's been how do you feel uh, about that, time. Sean? It's been a good ride. <laughs> how, how do you how do you feel about having a consistent career in higher education? Well, I'm actually on the brinking point of changing my direction in ah, higher education, ooh. so it's sort of it's sort of scary but exciting. Um, and I guess and we'll go more into that later. Um, maybe maybe toward the end where we all talk about what we're doing and stuff. But teaser: Sean is applying to graduate school. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, I, I was going. You, that was that was very exciting, but I was I was going more for the doom and gloom. Oh, but um, that's also good. Bum, bum, bum. Like the 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 uh, what is it? The Imperial March. Oh, bum, bum, what, what song plays in your head bum, as you're as you're searching for for PhD programs? Yeah, oh, mine is just hallelujah. Uh, <laughs> I'm really excited about it. That's good. Okay, all right. that's good. Um. Well, we we to be you know perfectly transparent here, um, maybe not perfectly, but to be more transparent, we were considering topics for the show today, literally right before the show, which is you know that's what we do. And planning, uh, what's that? Sean and I have have spoken a bit on this subject before, but and it certainly came up a bunch while I was at Texas Tech University, and possibly when Kevin was there because we were there at the same time. We were. There's um, there's generally a consciousness on university campuses around uh, protecting students from themselves, to put it simply. Uh, paternalism, you might say. Um, laying down boundaries for behavior that um, that are for the good of the students themselves. Sometimes running contrary to what the students would choose to do on their own. Um, certain you know topics such as uh sleep stress management um contraception and you know sexual education and contraception use it alcohol don't <laughs> yeah uh and alcohol specifically and, and so um Sean just from from your uh experience you have more uh experience in the alcohol realm of things right yes um at my most but recent more... institution but i've worked at five different universities and they've all had their own flavors of protecting and advising and mentoring and guiding students. And okay. I use all of those verbs specifically because I think you can see a clear pattern of our actions and our policies that match those different verbs. So sometimes it is protecting people. Um, from themselves and from others. Hmm. Um, you know, very clearly, it is against university policy to physically assault another person. Also you know, the law. It is also against the law. Um, <laughs> but given that as a staff member at a university, I don't enforce the law, I enforce policy. Mm-hmm. It's important that we also have a policy. And um, and then there that's probably on the one end of the spectrum where 
almost everyone can agree that's something that we need to have in place and sure um, in terms of protecting students from the readily harmful actions of others and then on the other end of the spectrum can be something along the lines of um, I mean quiet hours in the residence halls mm. where you know what is what constitutes harm um, and then something along the lines of maybe having policies about um, study hours. I mean, I've not worked at a place that had policies about study hours, but I've heard of it. Like mandatory really? study hours? Uh-huh. You, you have to be studying during this period of time? How uh-huh. does one enforce that, just out of curiosity? Not, not to get too deep too soon here, but how does one enforce that someone is actually studying? Um, I'm not sure. That would be tricky. <laughs> um, I'm aware of specific living learning programs or academic programs in residence mm-hmm. halls where a student would sign up to live in this building and on top of the normal housing contract they would sign a supplemental contract saying I agree that on Sunday nights from 5 to 7 p.m. that I'll come down to the common room and study and then they would have either a community advisor or resident advisor you know have everyone check in and then they bring their books and they study Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can't really, you can't really enforce that. You can enforce their physical presence, mm-hmm. and you can enforce, perhaps, uh, that this will be a quiet time, so no talking. <laughs> but yeah. you can't really enforce the studying. Yeah, you can lead a student to the books, but you can't make them think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and can definitely vouch for many the, nights where I mean, uh, you know, mm-hmm. leading a student to the books, but can't make him or her think, that is probably one of the bigger issues that we deal with in higher education, that we provide a a structured environment with policies and we also provide services. But at what point does responsibility leave the staff member and go back to the student for that in terms of using that resource or following the structure. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, definitely. So I guess what what I'm curious about, uh, you, you said you've seen contrasts a little bit between the institutions where you um where you where you've been. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm trying to think of in general the the ends of the spectrum when it comes to the application of these policies. Uh, I certainly don't have your breadth of experience, but some anecdotes that I have from mine. Um Baylor University enforces attendance at the chapel on campus for the first semester, at least, hmm. uh, as a um, as an avowed Christian university of, sure. of some generic sense. Uh, they're um, Baptist. Baptist. That's right. Um, they do require students to to do that, and as a mm-hmm. uh, you know, almost as an academic requirement, but not really. And then there are universities like Reed College that um, have. I I forget the exact name of it, but it's it's. Do you know what I'm talking about? I have about? no idea what we're talking about. There's there's like a jubilee day or something. There there's almost like a festival where basically anything goes on campus like hmm. one, once a year and and just so kind of like the purge, like the recent <laughs> horror film. I I don't know. All crime is legal one day out of the year. I suppose to keep the masses at bay. Um. Or something, Lock but it's sort in a of safe house with Ethan Hawke. It's sort of like there, there's a boundary set up, hmm. and the, like the bound, it's a boundary of a subset of campus, and it's like everything that happens within this is just is good, is cool. Like as long as as long as whatever is happening does not go outside of that boundary, hmm. all bets are off, and it is a chance for students to you know have just all the sex that they want and because <laughs> there are any... things that are stopping them from doing well that. <laughs> i mean but like in, you know um first of may you know type of thing ah. i think it's in the spring actually um for this exact reason you know so what weather's good for you know what you're feeling and just any drugs you feel like uh, i mean it, what ends up happening you know you would think oh my god everybody's just gonna start stabbing each other but it becomes <laughs> The kind of people who go to read are not generally the kind of people who would who would do that. Who jump up, to stabbing. You end up just getting a lot of sex and drugs and other things going on. And, and everybody's sort of, you're right, they get it out of their system. They purge all this stuff. And um, what ends up happening is generally the university is much more stable the rest of the time. Hmm. 
uh, rather than the students having to sort of hold it in or express it within under the side of, of the law or policy yeah. enforcement or, or these other things. So, Sean, I would ask if that is in any way reflective of experiences you've had or what, I don't know, what do you, what do you think of, of that, that sort of, think of it as tension and then release of tension. I found it interesting that both of your examples were private institutions. Oh, and I would, yeah. I would submit, in the words of my dad, <clears throat> that the spectrum is populated on the ends more frequently by private institutions. Hmm. And that the public institutions, the military academies, that they are closer to the middle. Uh, stuck in the middle with you? Yes. Mm. Yes, Steve. Um, <laughs> stuck and, in the middle with the 99%. <laughs> you no, know, but I can think of... I can think of examples as soon as you said spectrum and I thought immediately of one of the universities I worked for where there's um, sort of of an unofficial motto or slogan from you know that office that says um, anytime a student is hurt sick or scared we will be there for them as long as they need us and it's that seems nice and I what 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 are the consequences of that I would say, you know, one, it's, it's very maternalistic, paternalistic mm-hmm. with good intention, right? Um, Quick pause. Is there a gender neutral term? I don't know. And I was trying to think of it as I was saying it. Um, oh. um, I mean, I guess you, you've got, uh, I mean, just, just thinking about language, because we have parent as the same root as paternal. Paternal. Um, that paternalism is theoretically a gender neutral term or could be called such. Now, I don't but like that. Patri is father. So, yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's, yeah. I'm just curious if the, the, the wikis. Or parentalism. Hmm. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah. Parentalism. Okay. But you're right. Same etymology. Yeah. yeah. There's, not a gender, there's not a gender neutral term for parent. That's funny. Well, except for parent. Well, okay, but w- without uh, the adjective, without no the etymological baggage. adjective form. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then I will just go ahead and use maternal. Let's be a little bit sure. subversive. Let's do it. Let's uh, do it. Cool. Why not? But I don't know if maternal. Okay, maternalism has a different definition. On though. on the. Oh man. Like, yeah. yeah, it has. Um, it stands for its own thing. Let's see. It refers to an attitude that exalts women's capacities to mother and extends to society as a whole the values of care, nurturance, and morality, meaning to improve the quality of life of women. And okay, children. so this is this is is pointing out a dichotomy that exists in a lot of places of the the caring and loving versus the rigid and forceful uh, for your own good. Yeah, because paternalism, paternalism, again, this is coming from Wikipedia, paternalism is behavior by a person, organization, or state which limits some person or group's liberty or autonomy for their own good. So it's the, the carrot and the stick of maternalism and paternalism, uh, um, which is interesting. Because hmm. it sounds like what you're describing, Sean, is a little bit maternal and a little bit paternal. Can we just call them paternalisms? Paternalisms? I think we got a show title right there. <laughs> Stephen, I think you're right. This institution okay. that I'm referring to is definitely paternal and definitely maternal. I mean, hmm. in the in the field of student affairs, so not having affairs with students, but <laughs> providing services and mentoring. Oh, I'm sure I'm sure you make that joke all the time. But it, it just it to be clear. Um, okay. Yeah. That there <laughs> Sorry is we interrupted. We're interrupting you all the time, of Sean. Maternalism, of caring uh-huh. for the person. And that comes from the fact that historically, student services were the purview of the faculty until hmm. the early 20th century. And then as the universities became more specialized, research was emphasized and faculty members had more to do, we created um, student personnel, not students who were personnel, but personnel who dealt with students. Mm. And that career field became student affairs, what we would call student affairs today. And a lot of the preparation programs or training for people in my field is based on counseling. And hmm. a central tenet of counseling is unconditional positive regard. 
for any and every student who you meet with. And so that's that caring piece that even mm. though oh. they've made poor decisions and drank heavily the night before, you as a staff member will still treat them with unconditional positive regard, help them make better decisions in the future, but also the stick, if you will, is holding them accountable for the action. Um, that's the paternal side. Mm -hmm. Is there a tension between those approaches? Oh, incredible tension. And I okay. think <laughs> because we are trying to be both ends of the spectrum at the same time, and mm -hmm. you know, the one institution I referenced probably was more on the maternal end, um, where you would have professional staff members who would um, receive a phone call from a concerned parent. You know, I haven't heard from my student in you know a couple of hours, and we would be required to check on that student physically. Uh, yeah, and and you know, how and, does that come across as anything other than? Well, I just I, I don't know. I mean, that that goes into the helicopter parent issue of true. Like, I I literally haven't heard from my my little Jimmy or little Janice yeah. in three hours rather. I was I was honestly expecting you to say like three days or three weeks. <laughs> but no. hours was made that, me... Not it, was that an exaggeration, Sean? Um, and, you know, the staff members who worked there and our director, uh -huh. that was a part of the institutional fabric and in how we operated. That it was wow. You then not went and tracked down that student? I'm sorry? That, well, that you went and then tracked down that student if you had a parent say such a thing? To do, I'm sorry, I you cut out. Oh, oh well, so I'm just saying that like it was it was part of the maybe not policy so much, but it was part of the structure that if that were to happen and a parent were to call and you know raise this concern, that your then goal becomes tracking down the student and making sure they're okay. Yes, and it's you know it's um, it, you know usually it was not we would track down the student talk to the student and then call back the parent. That would be a violation of federal privacy law. But yeah. we we hear the parent, you know, we process with them, like again the counseling piece. Uh -huh. Talk with them about what this possibly may mean. And, you know, well I can't confirm or deny that your student even is enrolled at this institution. <laughs> I will see what I can do. And so we go to the student and say, your parents concerned about you. Give them a call. Uh-huh. And that was usually the the end result, um, but you know, at each place I've worked, that timeline and the urgency was different. Um, hmm. You know, some institutions were as soon as you hear from a parent, okay, we need to get on it right now, and others were, okay, it hasn't even been six hours. J let's wait a day. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah, but those were the sorts of judgment calls you had to make dynamically. Yes, there, there. Yeah. I don't believe that we had policies about that. I mean, there's discretion, mm. but there was definite. The practice was, if we get a phone call in the main office from a parent, that you would have one of the professional staff members out there quickly. Like we would skip the community advisor level. Huh. But wow. but you know where I currently work, we usually use the resident advisor. Like, hey, can you mm -hmm. check in with the student, and then let me know. And ask them to call their parents, uh -huh. <laughs> because they turned off their phone last night, and that's why the parents haven't been able to get a hold of them. Uh, yeah, so because you know sometimes you turn your phone off, and sometimes because, the battery dies. And... Yeah, and sometimes you're you're legally an adult, and you get to make your own decisions. Mm -hmm. Well, and and that I guess that's a good segue into my next question: is is this sort of um? It seems like it is this this balance that. Gosh, it sounds awfully like child raising, the the balance between, you know, how much autonomy do you give these these people that are on a borderline between children and adults? Um, and that's perhaps what is one of the most exciting things about college is it is this this transition period, this, this gray area. Space. It is a liminal space. I just um, like using the word liminal. It's a wonderful word. I love it, too. I use it in my thesis. Oh, Rock on. Cool. So do you find... Do you find more frustration or or fulfilling challenge in that um, in sort of doing that that continuous definition or or finding finding um, find helping students find that level of autonomy that they're comfortable with or how much of how much do you does your um, interaction play into that that formation of autonomy? Ah, uh, well, actually, uh, moving from interdependence toward autonomy, 
Um, hmm. Oh, I actually worded it wrong. But there is, in my career field, there is quite the literature base on how students develop. So um, you know, some of that, some of that research is in how do students move from child status to adult status. And early on in my career, I would get exceptionally frustrated because I would think, you're 18 now, be an adult, come on, <laughs> get it together. Hmm. And the longer I've done this, the more I realize it's not fair or realistic of me to expect that someone who turned 18 over the summer and left high school would immediately begin to make mature adult decisions. Right. <laughs> right. And I can speak from experience that they don't. <laughs> well, I, I, mean, I did. Taught at I the know collegiate I level. And, and, no, I'm sure I, I, I might have of, that thought at one yeah. point, but I would say I, I, having taught like freshman theater classes, yeah, I, I was quickly dissuaded of the same notion. That these so are very much that, still kids. I guess what I'm curious, Sean, is is that insight common? Or is that something you sort of had to learn on your own? I think it is much more common in our field the more experience that you have. Being hmm. a new, you know, if let's say you graduate with your bachelor's degree and then you go to graduate school or you work full time, again, it's, it's, it's akin to expecting someone who has their college degree at 22 and expecting them to act like they're 28. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, some of our of our sorry, some of the research that exists in our field specifically says um, that one of the Chickering Arthur Chickering is a famous researcher in student affairs and student development, and so he postulated that there are seven vectors of human development, and one of them is moving through autonomy towards interdependence, and you know talks about like a key step for students to make when they're learning and growing is to be self-sufficient and learn how to make decisions on their own, uh, taking responsibility for their decisions, and then eventually moving toward a place where they're in a community with others and realizing their decisions impact others. Uh, hmm. And so often I think some of our students, they're not autonomous in any way, shape, or form. They're very dependent on their familial structure, on constant reassurance and encouragement from their parents. And that makes mm -hmm. sense. I think others are fairly autonomous. You know, whether they left home at an early age and have been living on their own or they're just um, psychologically autonomous. But I think the bigger developmental step for them is realizing that they're that no man is an island, mm. you know, that your actions impact other people. And that's where so much of the good conversations and the work that we do comes into play. And I mm -hmm. know, Stephen, you were joking about the, you know, babysitting or they, you know, sounds like parenting a child. And sometimes it feels like that, to be totally honest. Huh. Well, and it, it raises an interesting question about the <laughs> the extent to which we are sort of outsourcing parenting in American culture at this moment and or have been for maybe the better part of the last hundred years. We, we have institutionalized daycare. We have public education. We have, I guess, these sort of expectations that the the growth process and the, the, the community will, in some sense, take on a significant chunk of the burden of shaping individuals so that, that a parent in choosing an educational institution or choosing a school or choosing activities or whatever is, is almost like a business outsourcing, outsourcing certain functions. You know, they, they are trading time with the, the kid to get a more precise uh, version of what they want done for the convenience of being able to work and get maybe a slightly less precise version done by a university. Mm -hmm. And um, so the parents that maybe haven't, developed a complete amount of trust for the institution where they sent their child are the ones who are calling and checking on them and et cetera, et cetera. Um, how, how, well, how, I, I don't know. Do you, am I onto something there or is that? Oh, I think, I think you're, you're hitting close to it. That, that parents are historically, you know, um, younger adults were leaving the home, getting married and starting their own families. Right. We are now 
excuse me, at the point where we are across the globe getting married older and waiting to have children longer. So family units are actually having more time with each other to develop that quote, you know, product that you were hmm. referencing. That would be my the, the idea is that we actually have more time now than we ever have before. Huh. And um at least in the the middle and lower classes. I mean, the elites have had other people raise their children for centuries. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's it's an interesting development because when you have a lot of parental contact, then mm -hmm. we I have encountered a number of parents who are struggling with their own mental health issues. And that mm. projects onto their interactions with me and with their student. And so I have had numerous conversations with parents where I am simply listening to them and processing with them through their feelings about leaving their child. Mm. Yeah. And, and that, that is a significant, is that a significant part of the service that you offer? Uh, more towards the beginning of the year. And okay. it's very institution dependent. Um, I, mm -hmm. I do that less here than I have at other institutions. But everywhere I go, there will always be a handful of parents. And I think it's, it's a, realiza a realization that I've had that we can't just think about student development. We have to think about parent development and, <laughs> and how the parents are experiencing the loss, quote unquote, of their, of their child. Hmm. Because for the first time in you know about eighteen years, they're not seeing their child on a daily basis. Yeah, and that's incredibly difficult for them. Hmm. And so, you know, you, you talk about the the vectors of um, of human development, and and well, well, I, not knowing the other six, this this might just be an oversimplification. But the one vector we talked about is going sort of from dependence to hmm. autonomy to interdependence. Is that accurate? Um, I wonder, I wonder if universities could be said to go through a same sort of progression or, or maybe change between certain ones and maybe even depending on the staff member or their department at the time, express themselves in different senses. So a, uh, a university, a maybe a public university in its most uh, quote primitive sense is, um, and I guess I'm quoting the original researcher, maybe, but like at the first stage, dependence is completely dependent on the, you know the the uh, the professors. You said there was no student staff whatsoever, so the professors were just sort of dependent on the the students and the community to be okay with themselves and did not have any function in the actual, um, like the stuff we've been describing. Universities have moved, you know, maybe toward autonomy, where they were able to have their own departments that are supporting the students once they're there. But you said part of your time, at least, is this interaction with parents that the, the universities are either choose or deal with by necessity and that idea of a university being very interdependent. And I guess in, in other aspects, and obviously in the research aspects, in the sending students back out into the world, in bringing money back in from alumni support, there is that sense of interdependence and the university impacting the place. But I don't know if, if much of this this psychological interdependence has, has been discussed much, you know, <laughs> the ways in which a university can give back in a in a social integrity sense. Oh goodness. I I would say because I'm in it all the time, we talk <laughs> we talk about it all the time. Um, yeah. and, and I would say okay. <laughs> we don't just talk, we actually do things. Um mm. But, but how much do people think of universities as as doing that sort of thing is what I wonder. And I don't know if, if, if that can even be answered. <laughs> you know, I that's a good question. I know that my current institution is all about what can we do for the North State and um, the northern part of um, California because that's hmm. our – those are our service counties hmm. because of the way – California higher ed is structured. Each of the California State University campuses has a specific set of counties that it provides services to and educational outreach. And so the university on the main page is a link to the ways that we reach out to the North State um, 
whether through agricultural extension or cultural programs or uh, teacher development for the region. Hmm. There is an emphasis on that. Um, same with the University of California uh, system. And, you know, that's that may be particular to California, mm-hmm. but... I, I would say Texas doesn't really have as integrated a, a university system well, statewide. We, we don't have a... I mean, I, I can't speak for California, but there are there are states that have, like, one university that kind of has a bunch of branches and a bunch of systems. And the closest thing we have to that is something like University of Texas, which you have UT El Paso, UT Arlington, UT Austin, mm-hmm. um, UT San Antonio. Is there one down there? There's, there's a lot of, a there lot is of branches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there might be one in Houston. I'm looking at a giant Texas map and be like, I bet yeah. there's one there, but yeah. there's one there. <laughs> um, there's not a UT Lubbock. There's not. Although there was. And we can all be. At one point. And we can huh. all be thankful for that. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, but I could see if if it's a much more formalized. I mean, because we've got UT, we've got A and M, which has a, has satellite campuses. We've got Texas Tech, and we've got a you know a huge smattering of of other mm-hmm. institutions. Not so many public, um, other than those big three. Um, but I could see if it became a statewide you know single system mm-hmm. how that could be potentially more likely to happen as opposed to a lot of the um the infighting and competition that we have between universities hmm. for what might be viewed as the same student base well and and for sports prestige and research prestige mm-hmm. and all of these well, other I, things i mean and, so much yeah. of you know what i've seen from universities um in my sort of university adjacent experience and then being working at them has been you know about attracting those new students yeah. Um, you know, the, the our climbing wall is six feet higher than a different climbing wall. <laughs> or we have to have a giant pool because they have a giant pool. Yes. Um, we have five gyms. And, yeah, know, I mean, these whatever. these sorts of things that, that I, as an educator, question the educational benefits of. Hmm. But the people making those decisions aren't worried about the educational benefits. They're worried about getting butts and seats and students through the doors. Well, I, I don't... I guess I don't under... I obviously there's there may not be an educate a direct educational impact, but those those sorts of amenities, I, I see them as almost a threshold. It's like okay, if students are looking for a certain thing, yeah, we've got all of that, but embracing maybe the the flavor of it all combined rather than you know kind of bullet points. You yeah. know, it's it's how does it feel versus. Have you, are you hitting all the I would, I would rather, speeds and feeds? <laughs> I mean, in, honestly, I'd rather shrink the university system as a whole hmm. um, nationally and, and make it so it's not necessarily something that everybody has to go to. What would you um, do, Sean? Well, I would like to comment on Kevin's assertion. <laughs> Please. Uh, <Okay>. about <laughs> oh, oh, my. Here we go. The, uh, no. the amenities, if you will, uh-huh. uh, the various physical aspects of a campus. And uh-huh. on the one hand... I agree with you that especially Texas Tech, I love you, but <laughs> maybe we should be focusing on something other than that awesome, you know, what is it? The leisure pool. The leisure pool. Thank you. Yeah. That's great. And I loved using it as a student, but I don't want that to be the reason someone attends the university. Uh-huh. And so with that, you know, my priority is the academic experience. But to say that we cannot or should not invest in physical resources or experiences that help balance out a student's life when they're at college, I think is to ignore the that human development does not just go along one track, that if they are mm. uh, learning in the classroom, that they will be healthy, balanced individuals who can contribute to society. I think we need to have reasonable residential accommodations. Mm-hmm. I think we mm-hmm. need reasonable physical recreation facilities and you know there are extremes and we are spending money on things that we don't need to i guess to as as a counterpoint to that i think and and you know the history of universities better than i do i'm not i'm not ashamed to admit that um you just, just that's that's where your focuses lie but i feel like there was a point in time where being a high school graduate meant you were ready to face the world. Mm. And you you then had an opportunity to go get a job. You could go do, you know, maybe manual labor, maybe something different, maybe, you know, 
clerk work. I, I'm, I'm making these sorts of things up. But you, you, could, you could go survive in the world. Yeah. I think we have reached a point, and the causes for it are, are many and hard to distinguish sometimes. We have reached a point where that is no longer the case. Mm-hmm. And because of that, universities have had to take on a lot of that responsibility, a lot of this sort of this, um, you know, direction and growth that you've been talking about, Sean. Mm. Um, they've had to, that's had to become a lot of their area of expertise because so many of our population go through that university system in that time period. And universities now, and again, this is a generalization, seem to have better financial and um, administrative capabilities when it comes to supporting the types of counseling institutions and, you know, recreational institutions and this sort of holistic approach to personal development than high schools do anymore. It seems like high schools very much have to just get the the bare bones academic stuff out of the way. Well, and, and then, that's and and that's and sort of hand wave everything else that's yeah. because of things like no child left behind, right, and, right, and are sort of focused on these metrics as opposed to teaching people. And again, we're talking about public institutions. Obviously, yeah. there there are private high schools that do a phenomenal job at, at mm-hmm. being little universities, and the people who can afford to go to them are probably come out much more balanced and sane. <laughs> I don't know about sane. But. Well, balanced or capable of something. Yeah, they can um, fake it better than the rest of us. Right. Um, I don't know. Is that is that maybe an accurate assessment, Sean? Oh goodness, there's there's so many so ways, many so many yeah. things. That, and, I mean, I, I think Kevin's underlying point is accurate. One, mm-hmm. well, two points. I would. What I gleaned from what you were saying uh-huh. is that one, the causes of the changes in higher education leading mm-hmm. to the fact that you have to have a bachelor's degree or the perception uh-huh. and probably 80% of the reality that you have to have a bachelor's degree to be reasonably comfortable, like uh-huh. to have a reasonable standard of living. Yeah. Um, and the other is that we now have, it, it seems that we are devaluing the bachelor's degree. I would agree with that. And that's, that's really disappointing to me. Mm. Um, well, I mean, it's, I, I, it's pure market saturation. I, I, I mean, it, it's it's when you look at at supply and demand. I mean, everybody's it, got one. Everybody's got one because everybody needed one, and or or could more and more could afford them because of student loans and because of the availability of credit, et cetera, et cetera. So when you've got more people demanding something, in order to supply that, you have to. Do things like lower prices, lower quality. Um, the, the institutions were not able to scale quickly enough, or open new institutions, etc., to um, fulfill the same sorts of needs. It seems, um, and that maybe is the case of any any sort of any sort of product that has that becomes enormously popular in a rapid period of time. <laughs> um, that that certain compromises just inevitably have to be made. Um, not not that there not that people ever consciously choose to make those compromises with everything in mind, but that just sort of happens. It's like oh well, a then b then c then d then you know m, um, and nobody really remembers a, <laughs> or or traces it all the way through. And Stephen, um, I I wonder you mentioned the exploding popularity of higher education and um, or demand for it at least demand. Yeah, and I mean the 1960s and onward was really sort of the heyday of higher education in terms mm-hmm. of in terms of funding and access and we reached the closest we've ever gotten to um, proportional representation based on race in the 70s you know oh, um, wow. and, and, and we've gone down since then I'm afraid uh, we've gotten worse and uh, that's, oh, that I believe it's uh, nationally we've gotten further away from that but certain okay. areas have gotten better at it sure but sure. interesting it brings to mind the that's that time period is when um, Supreme Court cases. I think it was, oh goodness, Dixon versus Alabama, maybe. Um, that sort of was the beginning of the end for the operating procedure. Or oh goodness, I'm slipping into Texas Tech lingo. Um, <laughs> the doctrine of in loco parentis. That, oh, um, you got it. Yep. <laughs> that we just looked it up on Wikipedia. Yeah. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you got it. The the institution 
stood in place of the parent, it could therefore make whatever rules it deemed fit, usually inequitably applied to yeah. you know <laughs> women or minorities or whatever. Yeah. And that after that changed, the institutions stepped back from those rules. So I wonder if the lifting of restrictions played into that, along hmm. with a lot of the other social factors and economic factors that were going on mm -hmm. at that time. Yeah. Well, and what happened is the university system was maybe prepared to handle a certain level of demand, and then that was that you think was the trigger that that put it over the edge, and they were able to, you know, for whatever reason they they had a little bit of extra capacity, or they were able to scale for twenty or let's say fifteen years, and then it just got sort of overwhelmed. <laughs> well, th this has been a, a fascinating discussion. Um, maybe. I don't know. I've, has it I've been, been intrigued. Has it been fascinating, audience? You tell us uh, if you have thoughts on this. If you you know have been to university, if you're going now, if you have seen one side of this or the other, feel I free feel, to share. And I feel like I mean we're, we're at you know close to an hour. I feel yeah. like we're like we're barely scratching the surface on this oh, sort of true. stuff in a way that I don't always feel that we hit. Like I feel like sometimes it's like it's like eh, we talked all we could about this. No, like I feel like we could go another two hours almost. Um, I'm not going to make you all listen to that, uh, dear listeners. Huh. But um, well, should we do a first like two parter in a while? We did the two parter with Plato. I don't remember the that. Thing later, I don't like, know. Like sh maybe <laughs> Sean, I don't know what your schedule looks like, but would you want to maybe find some more resources, maybe stuff we can read in the meantime, and then come back for a part two next week? I sounds exciting. Okay, let's uh, let's make that happen. In the meantime, audience, um, we'll have a few links in the show notes if you want to get up to speed on all that. Um, I will do my best to get this up within a couple of days of the recording, <laughs> which is not normally my style, um, so that we can make that happen. And uh, I mean, yeah. heck, we can just release them in two parts anyway, and you know, we could, well at the same time. I don't know, just because I mean, we haven't well, like released... we even yeah, I guess we haven't released in a while. So. Yeah, so I would want to. I would want to do that. Yeah. Um, Cool. Well, Sean, uh, where can folks find the stuff that you do on the interwebs? Me, Sean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, awesome. Sean. Me, Sean. Well, there's a few Seans. Uh, if you would like to get to know me better, uh, you can Google me, and um, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm Sean Brackett, S-H-A-W-N-B-R-A-C-K-E-T-T. Don't forget the second T. And mm. um, if you're curious, I apparently have a doppelganger who lives in Oklahoma and is a rodeo clown. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, like doppelganger, name doppelganger, or he looks like you too? Name doppelganger. Okay. Doppelganger. Okay. Yep. Ooh, doppelganger. doppelganger. Good day for me today. A name yeah. doppelganger. What's, what's German for name? Um, any any ger German? No, no, German? I don't know any German. Well, because doppelganger literally means double walker, one who walks in your place. Oh, um, and so let's, thinking, um, like, what's, let's see if Google what's now can do this. German, it's like double namer. What is name in German? Na nom. Na nom. Nom? Yeah, just, sorry, just nom. I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really, I got distracted. <laughs> yeah, well, so nom. doppelnammer, doppelnammer, meine Nam ist, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. My name. That is. sounds German. Okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. Cool. Well, um, yes. Google him. Google his name with the. Don't forget the T, and the and the, the two T's. T. Yeah. The two T's. The don't second T. Don't oh. forget the double T. Yeah. And there's Glados again. Oh. Yay, Glados. Well, you can find me online uh, many places, but I blog occasionally at stephent.me. It's Stephen T with a PH and, and then it, just one T. Just one at the end. Uh, I recently got a new uh, Nike Fuel Band, and I'm going to be comparing it to the Fitbit Force because, you know, I'm into the quantified self stuff lately. And you can follow Kevin. Sorry, I swallowed wrong. Um <laughs> This is, everything's falling apart. I was apart trying to uh, cover that and it did not work. Oh. Um, you can it. find me at uh, twitter.com slash kevsond, K-E-V-S-A-U-N-D. Um, yeah, start there. You'll figure out the rest. I do also have a uh, doppelnammer. Um, I've got a couple ones. One is hmm. a, um, an Olympic archer. Um, That's pretty badass. Yeah. Uh, the other one is the lead something for... 
um, a video game that I backed, uh, Planescape Torment, not Planescape, uh, Torment Tides of Numeria. Oh. Um, it's a new game by the same group that's doing uh, Wasteland 2. The, the lead writer or designer is named Kevin Saunders. Ah. I follow him on Twitter. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, we'll be back for part two in, uh, in a week or two. And uh, we thank you all for listening. You can find us at badphilosophy.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. We don't have an I don't know. What, what would we put on Take Instagram? <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> Something might be scratching your microphone, Sean. Um, it might be my Texas Tech pullover. Oh, yep. You're not, not yep. participating in No Shame November, and it's just rubbing so close. You've gotten such an incredible beard. You know what's funny? When you said that, I heard No Shame November, and I hmm. thought that that would be such a better month than No Shave November. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. I'm not sure exactly what it would be, but the idea of lessening shame in the world is probably a good thing. Right. As Rather opposed than to just lessening the, the, or increasing the amount of facial hair. And awareness of prostate cancer. Which is not part of No Shave November. Oh, that's Movember. That's Movember. That's when you just grow a mustache. So No Shave, shave November else. has no purpose other than to growing, not shave. growing facial hair. One of the first Facebook fads I ever became aware of back in the day. Huh. Back in college when all my friends were like, yeah, I can go a month without shaving because <laughs> I'm in college. I don't have any actual responsibilities. Word. I gotta I got yeah. say, Sean, I love your um, impromptu poetry that we have here in the chat box. Yeah. It just, like, it flows. Let's read it. Damn. I'll take River Song, or Ten, or Rory. The hair, the sass, the glasses, but not the ass. Badphilosophy.com Well, howdy-do.